Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore customer-centric business innovation by speaking with the dynamic companies making and using the modern technologies that are profoundly changing how the world works, lives, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Chris Lockhead, whose remarkable resume includes CMO at high-growth tech companies, strategic advisor to startups and VCs, Amazon best-selling author, legendary podcast host, and hardcore surfer dude. Chris, welcome to the Cloud Wars Live podcast, and thanks very much for joining us. Bob Evans, it is an absolute pleasure and thrill to be here with you. You're, you're too good. So, Chris, just from what I mentioned about your background there, you've got tons of things going on these days, and some inside the tech industry, some on the margins, some outside of it. But I think that you've always had this really extraordinary instinctive feel for the tech business that very few people can match. So just broadly here, what's your take of what's going on these days in what I call the cloud wars? Well, uh, first of all, I love, I love what you're doing there because I think it's a, an incredibly important discussion. I think at a very high level, this is the most exciting time to be in technology. It's the most exciting time to be in business. And I think you could argue it's probably the most exciting time to be alive. And I can sort of walk you through why that is. And then the, the smart people that I know, Bob, really believe that the current sort of innovation technology explosion that we're experiencing today actually did not start at the beginning of the internet in, you know, let's call it the early 90s uh, when it began to be commercially, you know, sort of popular. That what's really the big tipping off point for the mass innovation boom we see today is actually the cloud. And so, Understanding what's going on in the cloud, understanding the cloud wars, understanding all that is sort of the the cloud is the platform for this incredible new world that we've entered. Chris, we can't have somebody say something like it's the most exciting time ever to be alive without digging into that. So, yeah, yeah. Please tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. And, you know, this is the beauty of, of doing a podcast is a lot of smart people educate you on things. So I share with you some thoughts that are not original at all. They, they come from Duncan Davidson from Bullpen Capital. They come from Ann Mirico and Mike Maples of Floodgate Capital and my dear friend and co-author, Kevin Maney, particularly as it relates to his new book, which is called Unscaled. And so all of them have sort of landed at similar places, but I'll give you my synthesis of it, which goes like this. If you go back in time and you look at particularly the late 1800s into the early 1900s, what you see is this incredible innovation boom over about a 15 or 20 year period. And we get electric light, we get the automobile, and of course the road system that goes with that. We get refrigeration. Ultimately, that leads to a whole bunch of other innovations, the industrial revolution, et cetera. But there's a 15 to 20 year period there where if you sort of fell asleep in the late 1800s and you woke up in the early 1900s, you'd say, hey, shit, I don't recognize anything. And Kevin and Ann and Mike and Duncan and these super smart people in Silicon Valley argue that when you look at today, that's what's going on. Chris, we were chatting recently, you and I, a little bit about some things in medicine and these remarkable scale-ups. And if I could take what you just said and draw a connection to this. So one of the first discussions I had with a company using cloud computing, I think that touches on the type of like, holy crap moment that you've just described here, it was at Eli Lilly. And some of the, this was, you know, some of the top research leaders in the company were saying that one of the things that the cloud was doing at Eli Lilly was, this guy said, it's changed our concept of time. And he laughed. He said, I know that that sounds a little out there, but he said, let me explain what I mean. He said before, he said under the constraints of the old way of doing things, 
He said it took so long to get some servers commissioned and the software and everything else that the researchers started to say, well, you know, we really have to scale down our vision or our reach or our ambition on this because it just takes too long to get the stuff put together. And he said with the cloud, he said we were able to get to the point where we overcame the hurdle of technology so quickly that suddenly he said we were able then to change how we thought about things. We didn't have to limit our ambition or our reach or our imagination. Instead, we could let loose on things and we could explore very big problems in very short periods of time. And he said that impact on his organization, he said it really had nothing to do with the technology. It was how the technology unleashed capabilities and possibilities and innovation that they had never dreamed of before that. Is that close to what you're talking about? I think that's part of it. I actually think what what I'm beginning to understand is bigger than just that, but I would yep. agree with that. I mean, if you look back 20 years by way of example, you look at 1998 and you say, okay, we want to put up an e-commerce website and sell stuff on the internet. Okay, well, if you wanted to do that at any kind of scale with any kind of meaningful success, you were talking a minimum of 5 million bucks, probably closer to 10, but certainly five. Yeah. And you are absolutely talking a minimum of six months. That's if you were running hard and you were a venture-backed startup and you were super focused and, and you might be talking about nine months to a year. So in six to 12 months with five to $10 million, depending on your ambition and what you were doing and so forth and so on, you could have a quote unquote e-commerce business. As we all know, that's laughable today, <laughs> right? I mean, you yeah. can put up a WordPress yeah. site really fast and there's all sorts of services and plugins and this and that. And, you know, and of course there's AWS and which you write about a lot. And, and so the reality is if you want to get moving quickly for a very few thousand dollars and in a very few weeks, at most, you could have an e-commerce business. And so I think, yeah, time is a huge dimension of what's going on here. But I think it's a lot more than that. If you take a big step back, Bob, and you say, okay, what are the seminal innovations that are going on right now? What are the new technologies and new categories that are really taking off? And you go through the list, it's a very serious list. So if you start at the cloud and you say, okay, cloud, mobile, social, okay, th those are all things we understand, but those are all big, meaningful things, right? Then you keep going, you say, okay, blockchain, which I think is probably a lot more important over time than crypto. And we can talk about that if you want, but both yeah. those things, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, massive. Then you say, okay, 3D printing. Well, guess what? The 3D printing future is already here. They can 3D print food. And a little girl this year threw out the first pitch at the um, San Francisco Giants game with her 3D printed arm. Okay. We have yeah. drone technology that's very, very real and is being used in lots of kind of very interesting ways. Of course, I think IoT is underhyped, not overhyped. And then IoT gets you to the smartification of everything, ultimately smart cities. I was blown away to find out recently, you probably knew this because you, you know, you're a lot smarter than me, but mm -hmm. a new Ford F-150 has more than double the amount of code in it than Facebook has. So our cars are data centers with wheels uh, and we're getting smart everything, right? Of course, AI, of course, machine learning. And so you start to unpack this list and you go, hey, this is a list. And then to your point, then you go to the what's going on with bioengineering. There's been massive innovation that's really taken itself to a whole new level around genomics lately. In 1997 or 1998, whenever it was, Craig Ventner maps the human genome and it costs 
tens of millions of dollars to do that. He's the first human being to ever get it done. And this past year for Christmas, my sister-in-law gives me a freaking 23 and me <laughs> for Christmas in my stocking, right? Yeah. That's yeah. in 20 years. And so if you start to unpack all these innovations, you begin to realize the future's already here, man. It's happening right now. Look at, look at what we're doing right now. There used to be three channels on TV. Well, Bob Evans has a media company now. You used yeah. to have to go work for a media company. You're your own. You don't need to go work for a media company. That's ridiculous. Be your own. And so I think we're living at a time of profound change and a profound innovation. And, you know, as somebody who has more recently woken up to the reality that, you know, the future is, is on us right now, I'm super excited about it. Chris, if I can infuse a little personal touch here, it seems to me, as your, your friend, that over the past, I don't know, three, four, five, six years, I think two or three times you've tried to, to retire. But so many interesting things going in now, you keep getting finding new reasons to unretire and stay in the game. But the game itself that you get back into is changing because of all these things. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And I, I realized how stupid I was being with this retirement stuff when it's a bit of a long story, but the net of it is one of the greatest accidental friendships in my life over the last year or so is I've become friends with none other than NBA Hall of Fame legend, Bill Walton. A conversation with Bill Walton is a magical mystery tour. If you ever had one, I'll tell you. <laughs> I know he's tough to keep up with uh, just on an NBA broadcast, but I, uh, so I cannot conceive what a one-on-one -on -one would be like with him. Conversations with Bill are the greatest conversations I think I I've ever had. <laughs> um, and you know, he's been on my podcast a couple times and just having him in my inbox is incredible. <laughs> But when he first came on my podcast, I used the R word and he said, retired. What do you mean retired? He's like, Coach Wooden never retired. Rah, rah. And he went up on me. He's like, I guess if all you want to do is serve, but come on, you're not retired. And, and, you know, I thought, how right is that? And then, you know, Duncan and Kevin and Ann and Mike and all these people started underscoring, hey, a dummy, pay yeah. attention. And I just thought, look, as much as I like to do the retirement things I do, you know, I surf and hike and play with chickens and <laughs> take my wife around the house and try her to do naughty, to try to get her to do naughty things with me. The, the reality is this is the most exciting time ever to be alive. And it's certainly the most exciting time to be in business. It's the greatest time to be starting companies and it's the greatest time to be launching and creating and thinking about new technologies. And then if you swizzle all of those things together and say, how can we take massive technology innovation, apply it to big problems, create and dominate new categories and build massively valuable companies that do that, that hopefully make a big difference in the world. You go, hey, wait a minute. That's probably a cool thing to be doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wish I knew somebody who, who, who knew about that stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I could call somebody or something, email, yeah. text somebody. You know, you don't do many things that are lame, but your retirement attempts are definitely lame. So I'm glad to hear that from Bill Walton and others, you know, you, you got pushed back out into the uh, traffic flow again. It's, you, it, yeah, it's I'm a good time. I'm retired and I will never retire again. That's, that's good. Where, you know, you're never, never supposed to say never, but like why? And the other thing too, I don't know, this is going to sound corny, like maybe I've lived on the West Coast too long, but when the quote unquote work that you do is like, there's no distinction in terms of how much fun it is, how much you look forward to it and so forth. When there's no, like today's a great example, right? Last night, check my calendar. Oh yeah, I got Bob tomorrow morning. 
Well, I'm as excited to get on this and talk to you about all this fun stuff as I am to go for a surf. And that might sound crazy, but it's true. And so when the work that you do, you know, work in air quotes, is something that you are, in the parlance of our times, legitimately excited about, like you are to do any other thing that is quote unquote, not work related that might get you excited, then we need a new word for it. Yeah. And then, you know, this may sound crazy too, Bob, but I kind of feel like the, the situation I'm in, the position I'm in is kind of like a reward for 30 years of humping it hard, you know? Uh-huh. Like I woke up one day and went, wow, like I know all these awesome people in the technology industry. I've been in Silicon Valley for 22 years and, you know, some of the top VCs email me and some of the great entrepreneurs want to talk to me. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have a 30 year career. And at the end of that career, like everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that was really great. But, you know, stop telling me about the old days and shut up, grandpa, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to work hard at something for the better part of 30 years and then be at this place where the universe that you live in continues to to sort of show back up and pull you back in. And it's not like they're schmucks who are pulling you back in. You know, when one of the top 20 venture capitalists in the world, according to Forbes, sends you an email and says, hey, we'd love your help with this company. I just sort of woke up and went, wow, how freaking lucky am I? And why wouldn't I just bathe in the awesomeness of everything that's going on and the fact that the world is inviting me to participate and I should participate. Chris, I think that these times that we're in, and you and I have talked about this, there's, there seems to be, well, there are lots of types of people, but a couple of people run to the heat and there's others that just are like, yeah, you know, maybe I ought to put on another layer of asbestos and just try to, to slide around that. So I, I'm really happy to hear how, how pumped up you are about this. And it's also one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here to talk about some of this stuff because I think we get sometimes in the tech business just overly rigid and narrow-minded about this stuff of the technology and this, this, and this. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was, and again, I hope this isn't too wonky here, but one of the biggest things you've done, I think, is your work around, and you, you mentioned a minute ago, create and dominate categories. So whether it's Amazon's work or Amazon and a couple of research companies, I think that they've gotten a lot of people in the media and even some analyst firms to believe that the cloud equals this public cloud infrastructure. And they don't talk about the software side of things. And I think in a way, I don't really care. But on the other hand, where I do care is that it obscures in the minds of a lot of people who are looking at this, all that greatness, all that upheaval, all that possibility and potential that you've been describing, which is you get over into the software side of it, and that's where the real stuff and the magic and the incredible, beautiful new things can happen. So if you were advising somebody who is not Amazon, how do you try to recreate the category of what the cloud is so that people think of it as more than just giant zero-profit data centers? Well, it's so much more than that, right? So I don't know. I think the answer to your question would be I would start thinking about it in as broad a terms as I could possibly think of. Because I think the cloud is a lot of things. And I don't know what the technical Wikipedia definition of the cloud is. But here's the reality. The minute there is a base level of compute power, a base level of compute storage, and let's call it bandwidth, that is to say speed. So you have ubiquity, you have compute power, That is to say scalability, you have storage, and the fact that you can pay for all of that by the drink, and it's actually really freaking cheap. 
compared to the way it was even 10 years ago or five years ago, never mind 20 or, or more years ago. All of a sudden, and I know this sounds maybe corny and trite, but you have a real platform for innovation. And the other thing that you've got that I absolutely love is you and I have access to the compute infrastructure of Netflix. Uh, there's no, if you think about Bob Evans as a media company, you are a media company. There's nothing that you can't do that, and I'll just pull one out of my butt, that CBS can't do. There's no, CBS used to have a huge distribution advantage. You have that same advantage today. CBS used to have a huge production cost advantage. You have that advantage today. And so my point is, either as individuals or as startups or as any size company you want to talk about, we have access to, let's just call it, compute infrastructure and, and functionality that heretofore you had to be a Fortune 500 company to even think about building or using. And today we can plug into it and get going, you know, with a laptop and, and a little, little, you know, few else. And so that to me is incredibly exciting. Chris, I was involved in a discussion yesterday with a guy from Accenture, and he's done a ton of this work on how product innovation is, uh, is really driving transformation in the cloud and AI and these other things come into it. He mentioned a couple relatively small family-owned businesses in Europe that are just creating nightmares for some of these giant global corporations over there. And he said they're doing things that you know, a year ago, somebody said it's just not possible. It's inconceivable. And now it's, it's become the model that everybody else wants to try to emulate. And he said, so these big companies had better embrace this more passionately and fervently than anybody else, because on the one hand, they have the most to lose. And on the other hand, they have the most to gain, but they've got to be able to take their their mass and their incumbency, and they've got to think like crazy lunatic entrepreneurs coming into a wide open space like that. And you've dealt with tons of people in big companies like that. What would you advise them to do to get that magic that you just described? So I think one of the greatest things that uh, big companies can do is to play a game called the venture capital game. And here's how the game goes. First of all, we get educated on all the new shit, all the new technology that we think is pertinent to our, our market, our category, our space, right? Some of the things we've been talking about, others that are probably specific. So whatever industry you are in. So you, you get yourself grounded in sort of the most forward-leaning new business model, new technology ideas in your space. Then you play this thing called the venture capital game. And here's how it goes. You get up, and somebody gets up in front of the room, the facilitator, whoever's going to lead the discussion says, all right, you're all fired. You don't work at, you know, giantcorporation.com anymore. And you are at a venture-backed startup and you have as much money as you want. You have all of the assets of your former employer, the degree to which you want them or not. And your job is to design the next generation of this whole category and to do it in a way that puts your former employer out of business. Go. Uh -huh. And then do that, yeah. right? Just go do that. Because most people know how to beat themselves, right? That you know where your weak spots are. Yes. And if you get schooled on the new business models, the new technology innovations, the new ways of, you know, I'll give you a simple example. One of, I think the most inspiring companies in the world is this outfit called Gojo Industries. Uh -huh. Now, most people don't know who Gojo Industries are. They're a Fortune 500 company and they've been around for a long time. And why I love Gojo Industries is the company starts off and... 
much. Let me see if I can find out. Yeah. Okay. So they're founded in 1946 by a husband and wife team. Joe was the husband and I can't remember what the wife's name was. And the wife was working in like a factory setting and she had to clean her hands and they used a category of product called soap. And she thought it was gross because it was all nasty and got full of hairs and she worked with a bunch of men and men are nasty. And so, you know, we've all gone to wash our hands and there's a bar of soap that has been somewhere of ill repute. (laughs) If that's the cure, I'll take the disease. Right. And so they say, like all legendary entrepreneurs, they notice a problem. Soap is gross, right? And a problem that a lot of people hadn't thought about. And of course, you know, this is a side note, but a woman notices this, right? Because men, we're disgusting, whatever. We, we, we yep. just live with gross. So anyway, yep. long story way longer, they go to work and they start this company called Gojo Industries and they come up with a new innovation, a new category to solve a problem called wash my hands, have clean hands, but in a completely different way. And the new category is called liquid soap. And they, as a result, reposition the existing experience as hand soap, right? Or bar soap. And I don't know about you, but like, I don't want to share bar soap with a whole bunch of people, right? And so they transform an industry. Now, both categories still exist. But as we know, you go to a restaurant, you go to the airport, you go to wherever you go, and there's not bar soap there, right? There's liquid soap. A couple of the diners I go to, Chris, are bar soap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some frequent, there's some places, there's some dive bars we like to go to that, that are still on the bar soap move because the, the grossness of it makes it awesome. But then to, to get back to your question, here's what legends do. They fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Most people are in love with the solution. Most people even forget about the problem, as crazy as it sounds. So the Gojo folks stay focused on the problem. And the problem they start thinking about is, how do I keep my hands clean? Well, guess what? In 1996, 1998, somewhere in that time frame, they, by reimagining the problem again, they reimagine the solution and they create a whole new category when they launch a new product called Purell. Yep, now, yep, in yep. 1996, you and I didn't give a shit about hand sanitizing. We just blew our nose on our hand. We went to the grocery store and touched things and didn't think about it. We just, we shook hands, which of course is the most disgusting thing you could do. Uh, Well, maybe there's a few others, but you know what I'm saying. And so they reimagined the problem again. And today, you know, you have parents who wash their little children in this stuff. And they certainly, you're not a good parent unless you have like a full supply of this shit on you at all times. And as you well know, you and I go to the grocery store and they have Purell dispensers or Purell wipes or, and you go to a hospital or a restaurant or there's these Purell squeezy dispensers all over the place. And in 1996, nobody had a problem called how do I sanitize my hands? And now we all have that problem. They reimagine the problem. They ask themselves the question, how do I clean my hands in the absence of water? And so I guess my point in that is legendary companies stay focused on the problem and they're always trying to think about how do we reimagine this problem? How do we think about this problem from different angles? And when they do, they become Gojo Industries. And if you pay attention, you'll look around, you'll see the Purell brand everywhere. And if you look at the, there's a little logo on the squeezy thing you use in the bathroom. And more often than not, it's going to say Gojo Industries. Fantastic. 
I had not heard of that. My, I'm aware of the Purell phenomenon, but what a great story behind that. Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And Chris, you think that the VC game is better than putting together a, a blue ribbon committee? Well, you know, the interesting thing about the VC game is it's, it's the same as all other games, which is we live in a category queen, category king world. That is to say, more often than not, one company gets somewhere around two-thirds of the economics in any market category. And we did the work for my first book, and we analyzed every venture-backed tech company founded from 2000 to 2015. And we said, what percentage of total uh, market cap created goes to the category leader? And it turns out the category queen takes 76% of total value, total economics, right? So more and more categories behave that way. And so if you go back to the VCs, there's sort of two ahas. One is that's true in VC as well. So, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, but it might be as low as 5% of the tech VCs produce 80 to 90% of the returns. It's a very disproportionate uh, percentage. So the first thing is understanding kind of who those VCs are. The more interesting question is probably, how do those VCs think? So for example, Jim Getz, who's been number one on the Forbes Midas list for multiple years, he's one of the top Sequoia guys. He says two things that I think are really interesting in this regard, which is we invest in $0 billion categories. If the category exists, we're not interested. So that's counterintuitive, Uh right? And we can talk Uh about how smart that is. And then the other thing he says that I love is we look for mission-driven founders who can build a great product company and category at the same time. And my friend Eddie Yoon, who wrote a great book called uh, Super Consumers, he, he draws the distinction between missionaries and mercenaries. They said most people in business are mercenaries, and when the going gets tough, the mercenary will tap out whereas a missionary will crawl through burning glass to make it happen because they're on a mission. And so what I think what that means is what the best VCs are telling us is they're looking for people who are truly mission driven, who are willing to you know, crawl through fire and who are doing that in a category that they can ultimately design and dominate. Chris, you, you mentioned a moment ago the, your first book and all the, uh, the look back at all the tech firms and, you know, sort of how they, how they were organized and where that led to and somewhat into it. So Play Bigger was a remarkable breakthrough. Your new book, Niche Down. Tell us a little bit uh, about those. Is there any sort of connection between the two? Yeah, there's, there's an there's a underlying theme that's identical. And then it's sort of uh, the use cases, if you will, are different. The big idea is that the first one is the one I just shared with you, that when you really start to analyze what's going on in the world, we live in for the most part. And, you know, there's always edge cases, of course. But if you start to look, you'll see the pattern, a winner take all world. That is to say, one company takes the vast majority of the economics. Now, look, we can talk about whether that's fair or whether that's right or da, 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 I, That's a whole other discussion if you want, but that's just what the reality says, right? Facebook does not have a competitor. Google does not, for all practical purposes, have a competitor in search, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So that's the first thing. We're playing in a fairly, you want to be number one, and if you're number two, you're going to be fighting for table scraps, and if you're number three, you're effed. So that's sort of, and, and that's true for you and your career, it turns out. It's also true if you're trying to be the next Google, Facebook, or Amazon. That's the first aha. Like, make, make no mistake. All this sort of mamby-pamby crap, everybody gets a cookie and just, <laughs> just try your hardest and participation awards and all that, not, not helpful when it comes to business. 
yeah. and frankly, not helpful when it comes to life because it's not how life works. So that's the first aha. So then the, it begs the question, well, okay, how do I be the person that takes two thirds of the economics? Well, what most people get taught is the best product wins. What most people get taught is the pathway to success is about fitting in, is about finding your place in the world as it exists today. Is Most people get taught to compete. If you want to be a great lawyer, you got to do well on the LSAT, you got to get into a great school and then a great firm and away you go. And so we get tricked by life into playing a game called compete. And the best example of this that I can think of, or analogy for this I can think of, do you remember the movie Something About Mary? Sure, yeah. Do you remember there's this scene where Stiller picks up a crazed psycho killer hitchhiker? Uh-huh. And he's, by the way, he's played by an actor named um, Harlan Williams, comedic guy, a comedy, a comedian. If you ever get a chance to go see Harlan, go okay. see him live. He is literally okay. Peter Pan's funny. <laughs> Anyway, they're in the car and uh, they get to talking about Harlan's life and what his plan for success is and so forth. And Harlan says, well, you know that, you know that infomercial, eight minute abs, here's what I'm going to do. Seven minute abs. <laughs> and he starts describing this and Stiller's listening. And then Stiller turns and looks at him, Bob, and says, you know, well, that sounds really great, but what are you going to do when somebody comes out with six minute abs? Uh-huh. And so if you start to look in business and in life, almost everybody is playing a six minutes ab game. And yeah. so legends don't do that. Steve Jobs did not want to be compared to anything that came before. Yeah. And he wanted everything that came after him to be compared to him. And he also wanted the minute he, he sort of launched a new thing, he wanted the old thing to be immediately viewed as old and done. In other words, he took the world from the way it was to the way he wanted it to be. Yeah. And so most people, when they focus on success, they try to say, okay, I want to build a great product and or service. And then I want to build a great company to deliver that, right? So, or, or on the individual level in your career, you want to have a great offering and you want to train yourself to be able to deliver that offering, whether that's being a great accountant or being a great painter or musician or software developer or whatever it is, right? And so those are the two things they focus on. It turns out the most legendary people do a third thing, which is they are proactive about how they educate the world to think about them. That is to say, they become known for a niche that they own. And designing a niche or a category is very different than traditional marketing or branding. We can talk about that if you like. But the net of it is the most extraordinary people in the world are different. They stand out and they teach the world how to think in a new way about a problem and therefore a solution. And when enough people agree with them about their point of view on the problem and therefore a solution, bam. That's how at one level you get Google, at another level you get Gojo. And at another level, you get any small business in your neighborhood that's been successful over time likely did the same thing, whether they realized that's what they were doing or not. Niche down. Yeah. You want to hear one of my um, favorite niches of lately that I just heard about? Please. So a couple of weekends ago, my wife, Carrie, comes home. She'd been out all day. It was a Saturday and she'd come back after doing a bunch of fun stuff she likes to do. And she's telling me about her day and she says, oh, and for lunch... I had a sushi Rito. And I said, a what? And she said, a sushi Rito. You never had a sushi Rito? I said, no. I said, what, what, what the fuck's a sushi Rito? She said, well, it's a burrito made out of sushi. <laughs> you dumbass, right? And so it turns out that there is this uh, restaurant chain in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's seven or eight or 10 of them. I don't know, somewhere in that range. 
and they're not that old, a handful of years old. And they didn't do what most restaurants do. You know, and as you know, restaurants and bars are one of the highest failure rates of small businesses, yeah. right? They didn't just open a sushi restaurant called, you know, Bob and Chris's Sushi and hope that people find out that they have great sushi. They proactively position themselves in a new niche that they designed and around a problem that most sushi restaurants hadn't thought about, which is how do you have sushi on the go? And have you ever tried sushi on the go, Bob? No, because it doesn't sound like fun. No, it's not. Like when you're sitting in your car and you're trying to eat sushi, like it, do- it really doesn't work. <laughs> you're either going to get wasabi all over your you know, groin area or you're going to smash into somebody or it's just not a food that is conducive to. So they created this, this sushi burrito and they wrap it in that sushi wrap and you know it's it's awesome right but here's the thing they're highly differentiated and they're the world's first sushi rito restaurant as opposed to the world's four billionth sushi restaurant yeah and as such they're thriving and that's a classic example of a niche down right and so you can have these new categories emerge in technology around the blockchain or you can have a couple entrepreneurs who reimagine a sushi restaurant in a completely different way but wherever you are on the spectrum it requires you thinking about a problem and therefore a solution in a completely differentiated way. And most importantly, educating the world to think like you do. And once the world thinks that way, bam, you can hit a tipping point. But you got to love the problem, not the solution. Well, look, we all end up loving the solution too. If you're any kind of an entrepreneur, a creator, a painter, a songwriter, uh, whatever you are, any kind of a creative, innovative person, you are going to fall in love with your carbodingulator. There's no question about that. And that, that's cool. And I love great products too. Yep. Yep. And, and there's a lot of great things we can say about products that we really, really love. You know, I have a Shelby Cobra Mustang. I really love that car, <laughs> right? And so we all have products that we love. But part of why we love them is they are unique in a way that we relate to. And most often than not, they're unique around solving a problem. And of course, in the case of the Shelby Mustang, it's how do I have a really bitchin' American car that has 662 horsepower that solves that problem? (laughs) Yeah, creates the great user experience or enables that user experience. Yes, and often enables people to get the fuck out the way when you come up behind them. In the lane. For some reason, Americans don't understand the, 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 left, the left-hand lane is not for cruising. It's yes. for driving. But you, get, you don't have to move as much if you just stay in the left lane. Those people coming on from the entrance ramps, they're, they're not a problem. Can't I just stay over here? Yeah, what's, well, what's, you could if there wasn't a bunch of people driving their pre-eye in the left-hand lane at 10 miles below the speed limit. And look, yeah. I, God, God bless the pre-eye, but just, just move over, would you? Yeah. So, Chris, let me ask now, your uh, Legends and Losers podcast, just name one of the best in the world. And since you never do anything in the traditional way, what's been the secret to your success with Legends and Losers podcast? You know, and I just th- thank you for saying that. And it's wonderful. And you're right. I don't do very much in the traditional way. And sometimes it's exhausting. I will. You know, <laughs> everyone's like, can you just do something the way most people do it? You dumbass. Don't you have to? Why do you always have to? You know, like anyway. So I think there's two there's two things. One is, you know, where the name comes from, which is there's this BS in the world that somehow people who are incredibly successful are different than you and I. And that's just not true. And so it's the losing that makes us legends. And when you hear incredibly successful people uh, on TV or on a podcast or a story written about them, 
the impression I often get is, well, you know, they're awesome. I suck. End of discussion. Yeah. Right. And so, but that's not true. What's true is the vast majority of legendary people got to where they are by applying themselves. And it's the losing that makes us legends, right? When we lose, we learn. And the same fears and anxieties and, and failures and disappointments that you and I have, four star general Stanley McChrystal has. And, you know, we just had him on the podcast for the second time. I saw that. What a, what a guy. What a guy. Right. Incredible. And, you know, Bill Walton's another great example. His book, by the way, um, Back from the Dead is one of my all-time favorites. You know, he had severe physical problems. He didn't play for much of his career as a basketball player. And the NBA still says he's one of the top 50 to ever play. And oh, by the way, when he got signed by the Portland Trailblazers, it was the largest rookie contract in American sports history at the time in any sport. And he was a severe stutterer. He didn't want to give interviews because he couldn't talk. And today he is an Emmy award-winning sportscaster, a guy who couldn't talk. And so the legends and losers thing is just, hey, can we have a a real conversation about what it really takes to design a legendary business and a legendary life? And can we, we we invented a word, Bob, we call it losery, Uh you know, to kind of make the failure sound better than it feels. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the first part about it. And then the second part, which is maybe even the bigger idea is, I don't know about you, but I've gotten to a place where the standard interview, I I just can't take it anymore. It's a bullshit paradigm. And the reason it's a bullshit paradigm is what happens in most interviews. You have an incredibly accomplished person of some kind who's been highly media trained. If they're a business person, they also have their lawyers on them, right? (laughs) And so they know what their three talking points are. God forbid they say anything remotely controversial or off talking points, right? And they get taught by PR people to quote, bridge back to the talking points, right? So you can ask a question about anything you want and they will bridge back to, well, Bob, I'm glad you asked me that. And the first thing is, you are like, oh, for fuck's sakes, really? (laughs) Right? So there's this inauthentic thing. I'm coming on this, this show to spew talking points. That's what the guest is doing. And then you have this professional interviewer who's a professional interviewer and they've done research and they have prepared questions and they're, they're trying to bang through their questions. Right. And some, somebody will say something really interesting like, oh, well, my, my mother was a ventriloquist in a traveling circus. And they'll say, oh, that was really great, Bob. Now, let's talk about your most, uh, you, you wrote this thing about Amazon and where they're going. Let's see. You're like, hey, hey, what about the mother ventriloquist? What, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't say a word out loud until I was 12 because of that. Exactly. And so I guess my point is, There's a very big difference between a conversation and an interview. And I think for the most part, most interviews, when you're in interview mode, either as the interviewer or interviewee, you're by definition playing a part. You're trying to get through your questions. You're trying to get through your talking points. And then to make it even worse, the producer and editor are going to slice and dice that thing up and serve it up to the audience around a narrative that they want the audience to hear. So for example, we've had Dr. Daryl Treffert on Legends and Losers twice now, and I hope he comes back again. He's the world's leading authority on genius, savantism, and autism. He's a psychiatrist in Wisconsin, near Winnebago, Wisconsin. He was the guy they hired to be the expert on Rain Man to make sure the movie was authentic. Oh, wow. And he has been interviewed on, you name, you name it, 60 Minutes, wh- whatever prestigious super ding-dong thing you can imagine, CNN, and whatever. He's been on all of them, right? And what he said to me is, you know, these people call him and say, yes, 
Um, we'd like you to educate our audience on everything there is to know about um, savantism, genius, and autism. And could you do that in about 40 seconds? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Please stay on message. And so it's bullshit. And I think what people are craving for, you know, for every Kardashian ass selfie, mm -hmm. for every piece of stupidity that comes out of Gary V's mouth or any of these other buffoons, right? Jim Cramer, any of these people, right? There's an equal and opposite reaction. And so, you know, we had Dan McGinn on the podcast. He's one of the top guys at HBR, Harvard Business Review. Well, the HBR has never done better than they're doing right now. But print was going to, the death of print was going to kill HBR, Chris. Didn't you know that? Yeah, well, it, it turns out that as much as we've tried to kill substance with Kardashian ass <laughs> selfies, there's a group of people who are interested in, in things of substance. And look, I, I think fun and substance go together, right? But that's the beauty of podcasting. It is the only platform other than actually being together as human beings where you can sit down, have a real conversation, not a bullshit interview with somebody smart and accomplished and dig into some. So it's probably the longest answer you ever wanted, but that's really what we're trying to get done on Legends and Losers. Can you have a real, no bullshit, raw conversation? We don't edit the show, you know, unless there's a technical glitch or whatever. I mean, there's small edits every once in a while, but for the, you know, we don't re-swizzle the show. We don't cut giant parts out. We don't, there's no handy dandy three tips for the, there's none of that stupidity, right? There's a couple people sitting down trying to have a real conversation. And it turns out, much to my surprise, Bob, <laughs> <laughs> there's a real audience that wants to get yeah. in. The models shift over time. I, I'm not saying that to surprise you, but we just see this. And it, it's hard, I think, for a lot of people. Right? We get you know, heads down. Life's coming at you. You got this and this and this going on. I mean, you think about, oh, in the business world, there's the seven-year plan, the five-year plan, some of this stuff. And it's just nuts, right? That, you know, you think in today's world, we're going to stick to a five or seven-year plan. But it wasn't that long ago, Chris, that was the norm. And then everybody did this sort of TV show. And there were the three networks that told you what was going on in the world all the time and blah, 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 and all those models like that. And suddenly, somebody veers off, does something quite different. And there's a lot of thoughtful people, like you said, who are drawn to that. They want to get out of this five-second, six-second, four-second, empty, vapid thing of somebody else telling you what you should think, what you should care about, how you should behave, what you can do. And so often, that soul-crushing notion of what you can't do. I think that you've sort of pulled those together as a professional back in your, your tech career. You did that, you know, when you got into play bigger, you did that with your books, you're doing it with the podcast and especially you're doing it. If I may say what you've said yourself, you dumbass, because you've dropped this silly idea of retiring. So uh, I'm glad you have unretired. I'm glad you're doing these things like with Legends and Losers, and maybe in addition to this audience that's enjoying it, and you're clearly enjoying it, maybe it's going to cause some other people to say, hey, I don't have to do it. The sort of boring, stupid, silly, trivial way. Maybe there's ways I can make my new pharmaceutical product or my sushi Rita thing is going to be different. And I just love the fact, Chris, that you're out there, even if you don't say this so directly, that there's a different, better more fun, more engaging, more rewarding, more interesting way to do stuff. And I think of the many reasons I love you, that's one of them. Well, well, thank you, Bob. That's really, you know, super kind of you to say. And I think particularly in business, most of us spend more time, quote unquote, working than we do with the people that we love in our lives. So if you're going to do it, why not have it be awesome? Right. Yeah. 
And then the second one, this is another machine that I rage against, is this asinine discussion about work-life balance. First of all, just the saying work-life balance suggests that I have a life over here and work over there. And that one is awesome and one is less awesome. And what I'm trying to do is spend less time on the less awesome thing and more time on the more awesome thing. Well, what a fucking stupid paradigm that is, right? Why don't we just yep. start with the truth or the reality, which is, hey, Bob has this thing called a life. And we don't know how long Bob has, hopefully a very long time, but we have however much time we all have. Now, you know, I heard this recently. It sounds trite, but it's fun, right? When we die, what are we left with? two dates and a dash. Uh-huh. What are you doing with your dash? Uh-huh. Right. And your dash is like sliced up into like work dash and non work dash. Yeah. And it's just your dash. Right. Yeah. So what are you doing with your dash? And so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the, the reality is we want to design our life and design our work and our motivations in our quote-unquote personal life of which there's no such thing and and our motivations in our quote-unquote work life of which there's no such thing are exactly the same and so why not stop with this dumbass paradigm and let's just talk about life and talk about work things we do and non-work things we do and if we're a parent and if we're a brother and if we're you know we're all children and we're all we all have hobbies and other it's just who you are right there's different use cases of bob but it's all bob and so the other thing i think that's important in a quote-unquote business context is can we have a conversation about life in a business context yeah you know and for years we got taught no 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 your work relationships or your work relation, you know, don't, don't mix business and pleasure there, Bob. You know, it's going to get all screwed up. Well, what are you talking about? You dumbass? Yeah. It's all the same thing. And so I guess the other thing, you know, I, I have always tried to do in my, in my life and, and now try to do on legends and losers is have a business conversation or a, you know, a life conversation in the context of business. So true. Like I said, you're somebody who doesn't do things in the traditional way. And uh, I'm sure that, well, you've never annoyed anybody, Chris, of course, but um, never. No, no. That bothers some people. But I, again, like I said, I, I think it's been, you know, one of the hallmarks of what you've done. I hope there's some people not trying to imitate what you do, but trying to learn from that and saying, there's a lot to enjoy when you don't put those restraints on yourself, when you don't put the shackles on when you don't put that, you know, like I said, that, that electric dog fence around your dreams and your ambitions and those types of things. I mean, that's the thing when you get past the first date, past the dash, and you're hunkering down on that second date. I don't want to be looking back and saying, holy shit, you know, I wasted years or decades of my life being constrained by what other people said, can't do, don't do, shouldn't do, mustn't do, blah, blah, blah. And you know, if anything, I think, Chris, one of the things of your Legend and Losers podcast series has shown people, don't be afraid of stuff. Get out there, get after yeah. it, live it. And what are you going to do with that dash? That is a, that's a great spot. And um, hey, I just want to thank you for a really, really fantastic conversation. And uh, Thank you so much, Chris, for your time and insights. It's really my pleasure. I've been a huge fan for a long time. I love what you're doing now. I love that you're out on, on your own. And, uh, you know, most importantly, Bob, I love that um, you're in my life and you've been in my life for so long. And um, 
my commitment and my hope is that you're you're in my life until they put me in a box and maybe even beyond. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll work on the beyond later, but the, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. But for the here and now, absolutely. So, Chris, thanks a million, and I just want to thank all of you listeners for joining us here on Cloud Wars Live where we explore the unfolding adventures of digital transformation, cloud computing, and with people like Chris Lockhead, you know, the business of life and how all that stuff's profoundly changing, how we live, work, play, learn, and experience the world. I hope you'll join us for other episodes of Cloud Wars Live. Please share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.